So this was a shift. And, and so the questions and the rationale for the program shift as well, because now it's concerned with documenting race, proving that race exists in the body, proving that black men's heels were larger in width than white men's, or their arms were longer, or their brains were smaller because their skulls were smaller. So any way you could attempt to prove a difference in whites and blacks, the Sanitary Commission was interested in. Chapman University's Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences and Past Forward present Engaging the World, leading the conversation on health equity. In this series, we explore the historical, cultural, social, and economic disparities that interfere with the access to health and health care and examine how these challenges can exist in one of the most wealthy and technologically advanced nations in the world. We engage with journalists, historians, artists, activists, and educators to look at accessibility, cost, prejudice, and the human experience of healthcare in America as we look for the pathways to health equity. In this episode, we connect with historian and author Leslie Schwamm to discuss her book, Medicine, Science, and Making Race in Civil War America and how the racist beliefs and practices of medical practitioners from over 150 years ago still ripple through today. Here is Leslie Schwamm. Let's start with the question that was the impetus of this book, how the Civil War could end slavery, but not the sentiments of anti-Black racism in this country. And when we're looking at the Northern white abolitionists or abolitionists in general, they recognize the inhumane nature of slavery, but majority of them still believe there was this hierarchy of races, that there is this superior and inferior. Right. Well, I think it's it's a difficult question, I think, and it's a question that I'm surprised not more historians have paused to really try to uh, answer. And part of the reason it's so difficult is because on one hand, we have a war that ultimately, gradually, ultimately adopted the destruction of slavery as, as the goal of the war. But on the other hand, it's a nation that uh, invests a great deal of effort and, and research and institutional support to the idea of racial difference. So we have to then pause and, and think about what it means to end slavery, but to still invest in ideas about racial difference, why that happened, how that happened, who advocated it. And it's, it's made even more complicated by the fact that at the same time that we see this wartime and post-war investment in ideas about race and racial difference, at the very same time, we have white allies in Congress and in state legislators fighting to secure at least some political and civil rights for African-Americans. So there was a sense after the war that, in part because of Black military service, that uh, African Americans, having met the obligations of citizenship, were now entitled to the rights of citizenship, maybe some of them. But at the same time, many of the same people sustained 
this commitment to the idea that whites were by nature and by biology superior to African Americans. So, uh, and the and probably for me, the worst thing about thinking about this is to know that ideas about racism in North America are fueled by the desire to justify slavery. So from the 17th century on, ideas about race were created and advanced and elaborated on to justify what some humans were doing to other humans. And if we end that system of exploitation, why sustain those ideas that had been formed directly to support that uh, horrible institution of slavery. So it's it turns it sounds like a simple question, but it ends up being very challenging. Right. And I, I want to talk about the 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 title of the book, uh, Medicine, Science, and Making Race in Civil War America. And and the word making it it makes me think of the word fixing, almost as in fixing the numbers to make them work, of, of kind of creating a science that justifies this already believed notion of superior and inferior. Well, that's, I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad that's what it made you, made you imagine and think of, because that was exactly my intention, is to convey that the idea of race, the fiction of race and racial hierarchies had to be made. It had to be created by humans and human thinking and human desires. And so that's really what the book ends up being about, is, is why Northern whites in particular were invested in this fiction of race and, and how they went about ensuring that it would survive the destruction of slavery. When it's almost like seeing slavery, right? They see this as an, an inhumane act, almost as if you would look at a zoo as, but it's not humane to keep animals in the zoo, but they're still, they, they're still seen as less than that they're still animals. They're still, you know, this less than. So let's use our science and this opportunity and the the, the war where there are uh, a lot of numbers and data available to prove what we believe. To attempt to prove what we to believe. To attempt to prove, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and, and skew it to make it, you know, you're creating the science for it at that point. Exactly, exactly. So let's talk about the, the U.S. Sanitary Commission, this uh, uh, institution that that had a somewhat pious start at the beginning of the war for, for what it was that they, they intended to do. Right. Yes. Well, the Sanitary Commission, you know, a lot, a lot of people have studied the Sanitary Commission. You can't really even think about the Civil War and not look at the Sanitary Commission, number one, because it was the largest uh, voluntary organization that had ever existed up to that point in our nation's history. So it was huge. It did a tremendous amount of good by uh, forming these very local soldiers aid societies, which then went out into the community 
and raised cash for the Northern War effort and made or solicited goods that would contribute to the comfort of soldiers in the field. It might mean knitting socks, it might mean making jam, uh, it might mean baking things to send forward, uh, it might mean making bandages to forward to hospitals. So it was an incredible organization. Uh, it was the only civ civilian organization that was officially recognized by the federal government. And the monetary value of the work they did was really quite stunning. Over $25 million worth of both cash donations and goods uh, that were forwarded to the to the front. So they did an incredible uh, amount of work. Uh, it involved a lot of dedicated organizing and activism. Uh, so we can't overlook how important that organization was. It, it was also important because this was primarily a female organization. And it was a way in which some Northern women could be directly involved in the war effort. And in many ways, women experienced this as their first really direct relationship to the federal government, right? So women, of course, were denied citizenship rights, right? They couldn't vote. They couldn't uh, serve on juries, etc. They couldn't run for elected office. But by contributing in such an important way to the war effort, they create a kind of citizenship for themselves. And they become leaders. Many became community leaders in a way they never had. So that's all the really, you know, great things. There was some dispute between the women who were doing all the work and the men who assumed they were the best leaders and administrators of the organization. That was a kind of a contested battleground between men and women. So all of this is, is true about the Sanitary Commission, but what few historians have paused to look at is the fact that this was an all-white organization by design and by everyday actions on the ground. African-American women organized also uh, local soldiers, organizations, societies, raised money, rolled bandages, made jams. They did all the same work, but white women would not recognize them hmm. as affiliates with the Sanitary Commission. So uh, there were, there were th like three exceptions, and two of them were in Philadelphia, where the Sanitary Commission was particularly strong and where there was an elite Black population. And in that instance, you know, I guess white women thought these very, very elite Black women could be admitted as their colleagues in the war effort. But on the whole, um, when we look at the Sanitary Commission from the perspective of race, we have to recognize that white women and white men use this organization to insist that citizenship was raced. In other words, mm -hmm. this avenue towards contributing to the war effort and claiming your role in the war effort would, would be limited only to whites, that African-Americans could not be admitted into uh, this organization or recognized for the 
similar work they were doing on behalf of the Northern War effort. Was the organization overall more of an upper class? Is this, this you're not finding a lot of working class or is it people I, from status that are, are, this is my time and I'm going to volunteer? I, I think that's true for the organizers and for uh, the people who rose to leadership positions. That's mm. definitely true. But less middling class people also participated right. and did what they could for the war effort. And you talk about how there was a research arm uh, when you know the, the the men who did take over saw this war as an opportunity to advance scientific research, but more than that, advance their own placement in the world of science and re research by getting authorships and and being written about yeah this is also this is another part of the sanitary commission uh that a lot of historians have overlooked and that's the split between the relief work and the research the scientific research the medical research the uh, anthropological research and, and the research arm of the Sanitary Commission was run entirely by men and, as you suggest, for men. As it turns out, the war becomes kind of the crucible where medicine and science become more professionalized in the United States because the war offered opportunities to conduct research, to publish about that research, and really to make a name for oneself as a medical or scientific professional. The men of the Sanitary Commission became committed to that kind of work. And it was very stunning to me when I come across, you know, in the voluminous papers of the men of the Sanitary Commission, saying very explicitly, we are doing this work because it will make us men of mark. Hmm. That is, men who who will be recognized as having superior intellect and, right. and uh, superior professional grounding. And creates more status and opportunities yes. politically, uh, you know, educationally and... That's right. Now, we're a couple years into the war when uh, black enlistment happens, uh, which does, like as you mentioned, creates an opportunity for northern black men and emancipated slaves to fight for a cause, but also prove themselves as worthy Americans. But it also creates this threat for those whites who believe in this ranking of, of, of races. Right. So it's important to remember that white army officials and the federal government and the northern state governments were all entirely opposed to black enlistment, with very few exceptions. And it was only as the war lasted much longer than anyone anticipated, and as the human cost of the war to white communities became extremely high, that there was popular support for black enlistment. The introduction of the draft in the summer of 1863 greatly increased a willingness for black men to suffer military service. And finally, uh, the fact that 
over the course of the war, hundreds of thousands of enslaved people abandoned their owners and abandoned slavery and made their way to Union lines. So they were already working on behalf of the Union Army. Men and women were digging ditches or doing laundry or splitting firewood. So they were already working for the Union cause. The question was, would men be trusted with a rifle? That, that was basically the issue. And so finally, the War Department says yes. After the Emancipation Proclamation, they wholeheartedly invest in black enlistment in certain conditions. That is, in segregated regiments, because white men would not soldier with black men, uh, with white commanders only, because the army did not want there to be any situation where white soldiers had to take orders from a black officer, and also with less pay and other components of black men's military experience was also riddled with discrimination and exploitation. Right. So it was an avenue, many believed whites and African Americans believed this could be an avenue towards citizenship rights for black men, but they also encountered an organization that was really quite, quite thoroughly racist. Hmm. And so they encountered discriminatory treatment throughout the course of the war. And so we have now, we have this research arm of the Sanitary Commission uh, with unprecedented access to numbers of, of soldiers of, of different races. And now you have this large number of, of black soldiers at their disposal. And this is where that making of race comes into play and i want you to let's talk about this astronomer of all people who led the charge for the measuring of anthropometric differences of men from different races right first of all it's important to recognize that the sanitary commission and the army's interest in medical and scientific research around issues of what race was and how it could be measured this began only after the first two years of the war where there was already research being done on whites right so that kind of foundation had been built the sanitary commission and the army were both very invested in documenting the medical history of this first modern war in the united states they were very interested in why people were dying of disease Mm -hmm. rather than wounds and and you know this is a first war where they have to figure out how you mend soldiers who are victims of modern warfare. So that was that was in place. But once black soldiers are enlisted, both civilians and military medical officials become very interested in in how they could uh, make use of black soldiers who were available to them. This brings up Uh, Benjamin Gould. Benjamin Gould was an astronomer. He had the first PhD in astronomy in the U.S. He was internationally known. He was one of the nation's leading scientists. And honestly, for reasons I'm not clear on, in 1864, he accepts an offer from the Sanitary Commission to direct a, a program that was already in place. So before the Civil War, In 1859, 
the landscape designer for the Central Park in New York City had begun a project of measuring the workers who were mainly immigrant men. And he was interested in the differences between, quote, American men and immigrant men. So he started this project. And the uh, Smithsonian Institution was, was interested. And so the Sanitary Commission took this on early in the war. And so they began measuring white men. Everything about them that could be measured was being measured. But as I said, you know, we had, then we have black enlistment and Benjamin Gould accepts this post now to direct this project. And Gould is shocked that it, here it was, you know, almost a year into black enlistment and no one had thought about measuring black men yet. And he redirects the project to measure as many black soldiers as, and I should say Native American soldiers as uh, he could gain access to. So this was a shift. And, and so the questions and the rationale for the program shift as well, because now it's concerned with documenting race, proving that race exists in the body, proving that black men's heels were larger in width than white men's, or their arms were longer, or their brains were smaller because their skulls were smaller. So any way you could attempt to prove a difference mm -hmm. in, in whites and blacks, the Sanitary Commission was interested in. And, and again, it's, it's proving these elements of inferiority, like right. that these pre pre-assumed elements it's right. not researching to see what are the differences it's we want to prove this point that we already believe right i i have to say you know i'm not sure that they thought about it that that baldly hmm. you know let's go prove black inferiority they just assumed it was there and all they had to do was measure to provide the data so Gould trains this you know 10, 12 examiners uh, using a, a variety of equipment. Equipment, again, that measured the length and circumference of every part of the body, but also measured uh, the ability to take a deep breath, hmm. measured strength on a device that you would pull, measured the facial angle, that is the shape of the skull, measure the circumference of the skull. They had quite a range of equipment that was actually specifically designed so it could be carried from regiment post to regiment post to regiment post. And they would set up shop in black regiments and try to persuade black soldiers to submit to measurement. And it didn't just end like this, this research carried on through the battles and into the the cadavers and the casualties of war as well. Yeah, this is uh, an important part of the research that I did and in some ways the most upsetting and difficult to do research on and to write about um, because it was not only the living bodies of Black soldiers that the Sanitary Commission, but mostly the Army, were interested in, it was also those who were deceased, the soldiers and the refugees from slavery who died during and immediately after the war. So we have to 
understand that at this point in the history of medicine in the United States, it was actually very difficult as someone going to medical school uh, to have access to a cadaver. And uh, on the eve of the war, a medical student's experience dissecting a cadaver was regarded as the gold standard of medical education. You couldn't really understand uh, human physiology and the human body unless you understood anatomy, not by studying charts, but through hands-on experience mm. with cadavers. So before the Civil War, there was actually an illegal trade in cadavers. Uh, and this is where we get the idea of grave robbers. So uh, there was this kind of underground economy where the graves of the nation's most vulnerable, so enslaved people, the poor, black people, people buried in potter's graves in, in public cemeteries, those fresh graves would be unearthed and the cadavers sold to medical schools. So then we have the war and we have an abundance of cadavers. So suddenly that thing that was the measure of medical professionalization was available to anyone with an interest. Uh, regimental surgeons, hospital workers, hospital surgeons. So what we see happen during the war, especially among uh, military medical men is a real desire and demonstrated impulse to anatomize uh, the human remains of black men and women. This term, yeah. really quickly, like th this is not, you mentioned, th not the same as an autopsy to, to study the, uh, the cause of death or what led to a death. This is, this is us in high school with a fetal pig or a frog and, and figuring out how the body this works. This is dissection yeah. and removing the different organs, perhaps weighing some or measuring them and taking careful notes. Mm -hmm. That's what that's dissection, or if you're actually removing things, that's anatomization. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this is what we see is not a rise of autopsies of black soldiers and civilians, but a rise of dissection and anatomization. And a handful of that I've been able to find, I'm sure that's not all, but a handful of these white medical men actually published pamphlets containing the case reports of their dissections of black soldiers. Now, these are surgeons who also performed autopsies on white soldiers, but it was their access to black soldiers and their writing about it for published forms. So there's an assumption there that there's an interested audience, which is, which is, you know, indicates something. It tells us something, um, an interest in the makeup of the black body as though it would be something different. So we know that at least some of this interest was driven by a presumption of racial difference, hmm. okay? But then we look at what's happening in hospitals where black soldiers and black refugees from slavery are being treated and are dying in very large numbers in places like Washington, D.C., or Nashville, or Memphis, or St. Louis. And what we see there is 
simply a convenient use of the human remains of African Americans because they're there in abundance. Hmm. In other words, it, in some instances, it didn't, the medical professionals didn't care that they were black. They just simply had access to them because they died in such large numbers. And the fact that many of these military hospital employees and officers conducted dissections of black civilians raises a really important question because this work that the army wanted medical staff to do was supposed to be about the medical history of the war and the military conflict. And if that's the case, why are they so interested in black civilians hmm. who aren't dying from battlefield wounds? Uh, they're dying because of starvation and and disease that was running rampant in these refugee camps where former slaves gathered. So in some ways, this reveals all of the inconsistencies of ideas about race, that black bodies can be conveniently neutrally human when it serves whites, or they can be raced and different when it serves whites. Now, I want to connect this. I mean, there's so much more I want to dive in. Like, I, we're not even covering the families of those soldiers and civilians who weren't able to bury their their children, their, their siblings, or, or whoever. But I do want to take it into the future. And, and in your research, was this racialized medicine was this kind of an incentive for the study of eugenics as we oh, move forward absolutely the mounds of both quantitative data and qualitative surveys and questionnaires and reports and observations the published articles this creates a massive database which would be used well into the 20th century by race scientists and medical professionals who were interested in advancing racist medicine and racist medical science. Eugenics was a part of that. Uh, this impulse to measure bodies as a way to demonstrate how race is expressed in the human body the Army would continue to do those kinds of research uh, projects during World War I and World War II. We know in World War I and World War II, people of color who were in the service were used as victims of experimentation with things like mustard gas. Uh, and, and racist science uh, as a whole relied on much of this data. So the data that Benjamin Gould helps collect and then publish, reappears in the footnotes of race scientists well into the 20th century. And among those who tried to challenge, you know, the, the false premises that that work relied on was W.E.B. Du Bois, who did this massive study of people in Philadelphia, of African Americans in Philadelphia. And he noted that, that this project was in part to challenge uh, the assumptions that underlay Gould's data set. Where we are now, uh, how much of this, uh, I, I can't even call it misunderstanding because it's 
these preconceived notions of racial biology and, and, and anatomy, how much of that is still existent in our medical practices? It, it is endemic today in our medical practices. And, and I have to preface this by saying I, I don't do research on the 20th and 21st century, but there are many really incredible scholars who have done this research. Helen Washington, Dorothy Roberts, Vanessa Northington Gamble. There, there's a number of people who have very carefully exposed how uh, racist medicine and racist science continues in medical schools today. It continues in, for example, race correction that's used in diagnostics and in certain uh, medical devices like spirometers. They continue to use something called a race correction. We know that uh, pharmaceutical companies are now targeting particular ethnic and racial groups with specific pharmaceuticals that suggests that, again, that black physiology is by nature different from that of whites. Medical students continue to graduate believing in the human body being a reflection of differences in race. Uh, it's, it's so pervasive that it's, it's really frightening. And, and most importantly, it means that people of color are not getting adequate health care. Their pain is not uh, satisfactorily addressed by their physicians. They are suspicious of white hospitals, right? Of hospitals where they are the minority, where they don't encounter physicians of color, because there is a long history of maltreatment and discrimination. Its impact is something that uh, we live with today and that some people die from today. If you would like to continue the conversation, visit chapman.edu slash Wilkinson to learn more. To access recommended books from our guests for further learning and for more socially conscious content, visit us at pastforward.org or follow us at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you podcast.